1: What a great, great topic. We've enjoyed studying, learning about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, omnipotent God. I know we don't think of Him that way, but He is all-powerful, omnipresent. He and, and He, we trust, is right in this room tonight, ministering uh, in and through us and giving us power for all the things He wants us to do. It's good for us to learn about the Spirit, isn't it? Uh, there's lots of scripture about the ministry of, this, of the uh, Spirit, a point I made a week ago is uh, we should not imagine that the Spirit yearns to be the anonymous member of the Trinity. That makes no sense at all. Do you know anything about the Holy Spirit? Can any, any of you tell me something about the Holy Spirit? Landis, can you tell me something about the Holy Spirit? Third person of the Trinity? Third person of the Trinity? How do you know that? The Bible. And where did the Bible come from? The spirit, yeah. So, so the spirit told you about himself. The spirit teaches I us about himself. That is I right. Know that because I know him. And he's testified to your know spirit. That if, that's, if, that's right. He is not quiet. He's not passive or meek or whatever. You know, invisible, desiring a low profile or any of those things. I hear the strangest things. He's, busy, he's, busy. he's none of the above. He does testify to Christ. There's no question about that. That is a great ministry that he does.
0: That's
1: he right. That's exactly right. So we're going to learn more about the spirit. We've already talked about the personality of the spirit. He's not an impersonal force. He has emotions. He makes plans. He acts and moves. This is the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that already. We've talked about the deity of the Spirit. Landa said that he's the third person of the Trinity. We believe that the Spirit is Almighty God. Uh, He is God the Spirit. And so we've already discussed that. We've talked about the empowering ministry of the Spirit. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Acts 1.8. I think one of the key things in the Christian life is to learn how to draw moment by moment on the power of the Spirit to be moment by moment empowered by the Spirit for whatever you're facing. This is not easy to do. To draw on the power of the Spirit in times of temptation, to draw on the, in the power of the Spirit to be a faithful witness uh, at a restaurant or, or on a, a plane flight or with a neighbor or a relative, to draw on the power of the Spirit when you're feeling discouraged or attacked, the flaming arrow of the evil one coming at you, and to know that the Spirit is there. You know, we, we start many good things in the Christian life, but we, we grow weak and weary, don't we? we? We faint. We don't keep on going. That's an evidence of the weakness of the flesh, the frailty of our very nature. The Spirit has come to give us power, and He is available at all times to give us that kind of power. So the power of the Spirit, He gives life, and He gives power for service. We've discussed all that. Sometimes I have more fun reviewing than teaching the new things. That's why we never finish these sheets. Have you noticed? We just keep on going. Holy Spirit sheet four, Holy Spirit sheet five, but I'm not too worried about all that. These things are well worth discussing. It's important to learn about the ministry of the spirit. So tonight we're going to look at the purifying ministry of the spirit. Now of all the titles, who can give me different titles given to the third person of the Trinity? What are some different titles we give? The comforter, teacher. teacher, some others paraclete that's just an english transliteration of that word counselor or comforter we get there's one counselor holy ghost. the holy ghost okay old old english word for spirit but we use that okay of all the titles of the spirit which is the most common what's the one we use the most frequently of the third person of the trinity huh i would not think comforter, would not think comforter. wouldn't you think the holy spirit is the most common and it's so common so common, you think, well, isn't that his name? <laughs> but that's just one of the many names given to the third person of the, of the Trinity. But it is, it is definitely the most common title we use for him, the Holy Spirit. Now, the title Holy Spirit implies the holiness of the Spirit. The word holiness implies his total and complete separation from all evil. He is a holy being and he's separate from evil. Uh, I think of the holiness of God, you know, when in Isaiah 6 and the angels are covering their faces and all that, and they're crying to one another, holy, holy, holy. I think the idea is just one of separation. He is high and exalted, separate from his creation, separate and above. He's unlike anything. I'm just talking about God, almighty God. But I think in the same way, we speak, speak of the spirit as being separate from creation. We do not, we're not Eastern mystics here. Uh, believing that the spirit is the life force kind of interweaving with all of of nature or something. I don't know what the Buddhists or some of these Eastern mystic religions uh, teach, Uh, pantheism or panentheism, some of these different views of God, that God is all things. God is not all things. He is holy. He's separate from his creation. He's different from those things that he's made. And yet he rules over all things actively. He's involved intimately in the tiniest details, holding every atom of the universe together by the direct power of his word. Definitely involved, but he is different from what he has made. So also we speak of the holiness of the spirit. But more than anything, we think of separation from evil. When you think of holiness, don't you think of that? Free from evil. And so one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to make us so. That he would make us pure, that we would be ourselves holy. The spirit is given for that purpose. And what a work that is. Isn't that true? What a work it is to take sinners like us. And make us actually holy. Actually holy. Not just holy positionally. Because God has has ascribed to us the value of the work of Christ. Given to us or imputed to our accounts. The righteousness of Christ. The spirit is given to make us actually holy. That we think like God thinks we love what God loves. We embrace what he embraced. We, we cherish the things he cherished. The, the, this is the work of the spirit. And so uh, the work of holiness that he does within us and in the world. Look at John 16:8 through 11. When he comes, namely the spirit, the counselor, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment in regard to sin. Because men do not believe in me these are Christ's words. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the father where you will see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Those connections are actually not easy to understand. And I'm not going to take time now to talk about each of those three. But you see the convicting work of the spirit. Now, let me ask you a question. Why is it that many people in the world feel guilty? Why do they feel guilty? They are guilty. There you go. It's that simple. Okay? Why do people feel guilty? It's because they are guilty. Let me ask a deeper question. Why do guilty people not feel guilty? Would you say that there are guilty people who don't feel guilty? At all? I think so. And so I think there are, are fewer guilty feeling people in the world than there should be. (laughs) Okay? Because the fact of the matter is that we are all guilty of sin. The Holy Spirit comes to convict The world of guilt in regard to sin. What does that mean? To convict. The convicting work of the spirit. Yeah. To make them aware of their guilt. Is that of any benefit? Is that a good thing? To feel convicted of guilt in regard to sin. You're nodding your heads. Why is that a good thing that the spirit does for us?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: The first step for reconciliation. Jim, what were you saying? Without that, we will not see that we need a savior. Any other thoughts on, on why this is such an incredible gift that the spirit would come and convict us of guilt? That's right. We don't see it the way we should. Yeah. That is an incredibly important question. Did you hear it? What's the difference between convict and accuse? You use the word accuse. What are you thinking of when you think of accuse? Satan, of course. Satan is called in the book of Revelation, the accuser of the brethren. Do you think it's important to discern whether you're feeling guilty because Satan's accusing you of sin or feeling convicted because the Spirit's convicting? Do you think it's important to make a difference? All right, now you're asking, how do we tell the difference? What's the answer to that question? Yeah, Joyce. That is such an incredible answer. I hope you heard it. Basically, her answer is, if I can summarize what Joyce said, her answer is, what effect does it have in the individual? When Satan accuses you, what effects, What does it leave you feeling? Just a minute, Tom, hang on to your thought. But what does it leave you feeling? Anybody? Despair, hopelessness, sapped of energy in an in a inky pool with no strength at all. Is that where the spirit leaves you when he does his work? Let me show you an example. Tom, go ahead and say and then I'll show you an example.
0: I think building on what Joyce said, I heard it explained one time, that Satan will accuse and say something like, you're a terrible person. Whereas Satan <clears> might say, you know, you yelled at your children, and that was wrong, and you need, that, that you need to correct that. And so it's more specific yeah. as to trying to you know, build toward that holiness and, and correcting the, the actual sin where Satan might be just kind of
1: speaks in generality. Yeah, I think that's the case. I think a really good diagnostic for this is in 2 Corinthians 7. Take a minute and look there. But 2 Corinthians 7, I really believe that Paul is referring several times in 2 Corinthians to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in which he writes concerning a very egregious sin in the Corinthian church, in which there's a man who has his father's wife, and he says, you're proud you should have thrown the guy out. You know, that's the whole church discipline chapter, 1 Corinthians 5. And he writes them very pointedly about that and deals with them very sharply. As a matter of fact, I think it's in 2 Corinthians that they say of Paul, look at look at him, his letters are weighty and forceful. But in person, he's rather unimpressive. You know, well, I think his letters were very convicting. And, and one of them, 1 Corinthians 5, would be an example. In in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he urges reconciliation for this individual because he feels that they have shown fruit in keeping with repentance, that they're ready to be restored now to the body. And he he wants them to be taken back in. He deals with all that. But in 2 Corinthians 7, I think he goes right to the heart of the question that you're asking. Look at 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 8, uh, 8 through uh, beginning of verse 13. It says, even though... Uh, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. <laughs> I'm glad, actually. <laughs> um, he says, Though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while, yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. That's the key right there. What effect comes from the feeling of guilt or conviction or whatever? Does it come with it an accompanying power to make the changes required? so that after you follow that internal leading, you are in a right relationship with God, free from the matter. You know that your transgressions are forgiven, your sins are covered, Psalm 32, Romans 4. You are free now, you're cleansed from all guilt. First John 1, uh, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you are now empowered and you're able to move on in your life. That's what the Spirit does. And he says, I'm glad you were sorrowful. Because look at, look at the effect of the sorrow. Look what he does. Verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. That seems kind of energetic, doesn't it? I mean, there's a lot of drive in this, a lot of energy. That's what happens when the spirit convicts. When, when the devil accuses, you're left feeling sapped and debilitated, depressed and morose. Inward focus, not upward focus, God focused. You're inward focused. You're just drained and depressed and you can't move. It is so important to distinguish between the two because the spirit's going to go on convicting. And we should not think, oh, I'm feeling guilty. It's just the devil. It may not be the devil. It might actually be the spirit saying, you're sinning and your sin hurts you and uh, you need to to repent. So I, I love this passage here in 2 Corinthians 7 because it shows the drive and the energy that comes from genuine repentance. And notice that he wants you to feel sorrowful. You know why he wants you to feel sorrowful? Because he wants you to feel whatever he feels about everything. And what did he feel when you sinned? What word is used concerning the spirit's emotional response to sin? You have grieved the spirit. And what I've found is that there's this odd lag time in the grief. We can go on like sheep. Playing around long time after the spirit's grieved and not pleased with our behavior patterns. But at some point, if the spirit lives within you, he will minister his grief to you. He will make you sorrowful. Why? So that you can repent. Why? So that you can bring about the fruit in keeping with repentance and get back where you need to go. The devil doesn't have any of that indication. He just wants to sap you of life and strength and energy. So anyway, very good question. All right. So the spirit has come to work holiness in us and he does it at the beginning by convicting us of sin. He does that in an ongoing way by uncovering sin. Let me ask you a question. A very practical question. Do you think that the spirit has shown you all of your sin at this present time? <laughs> You're convinced that he has not. Why do you have a sense that he has not shown you all of your sin? What? Well, I mean, maybe you've seen hundred percent of it, but, uh, you know, my, my question to you is, uh, don't you have an indication as you go on that things get uncovered in due time, according to the wisdom of the spirit. And you say, well, I did that like six months ago and all this time I wasn't thinking a thing. I've had lots of good quiet times, heard lots of good sermons, read some good books, been memorizing scripture and the spirit never spoke a word. And all that time he was displeased with something, but at the right time, providentially, some realization comes and you say, oh my goodness, what have I done? What did I do? You know that tells me? There must be lots of those projects going on. There's things in my life that are not uncovered to me. Why doesn't he uncover the whole kit and caboodle? Why not show you the whole mess all at once? <laughs> You'd be crushed. You're a bruised reed. You're a smoldering wick. He doesn't, he doesn't break the bruised reed. He doesn't crush the, or, or extinguish the smoldering wick. He knows how to deal with sinners in gentleness and say, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when the Spirit comes, you know, when Jesus says more than you can now bear, that's an estimation of our frailty and our weakness. There he was speaking the night before he was crucified to his disciples, saying, you wouldn't believe all of the doctrines I have to teach you, but look at you, you're crying, you're sad, you have no idea what's about to happen. You can't handle it, you're just weak. Later that same evening, he'd say the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's a sense of the weakness of our frames. He's mindful of that and therefore only shows us a percentage of what we need to know. And therefore, I say to you that we must be covered in grace all the time. At every moment, we're covered in grace. And on that basis and that basis alone, are we in a right standing with God because he covers us in grace. Also, we see the the futility of the Roman Catholic system of confession that said any unconfessed sin puts you in purgatory for however long. I'm saying that implies that we're aware of everything that there could be against us, everything. Well, Martin Luther wasn't long before he realized, man, I better spend most of my day in the confessional. Uh, He was just so aware of his own sinfulness. that He said, I can't even, as soon as I walk out, I do something wrong. He was doing U-turns and coming back. And his father confessor was a little weary of seeing him. He said, go do something big. I mean, if you're going to be here, do something worth talking about, you know, so bad advice. But anyway, um, get the point. So the spirit works conviction of sin, but he does not show us everything. He just works so wisely initially to bring us to Christ. We just get the sense we are sinners and we need a savior. But then in an ongoing way, he just keeps feeding out conviction to show us our ongoing need for a savior and to work on us. Uh, secondly, how does the spirit sanctify us at conversion? Well, in first Corinthians six, nine and 11, nine through 11, it says, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Very strong statement. There should not be ignored. This is just a true statement. But then in verse 11, it says, and that is what some of you were. Isn't that a beautiful past tense? If there's ever a great past tense, that's the one. That's what you used to be. Don't let anyone ever tell you that homosexuality, for example, is genetic and not a choice or something like that. How then would you explain the past tense here? That's what you were. But now what has happened to you? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Now I'm contending that in this verse, the word sanctified means something different than that ongoing work of progressive sanctification that is so essential to our salvation. I think what's happening here is that sanctified means set apart unto God as his prized possession, his special possession. Just like those articles in the temple of the Old Testament would say on them, holy to the Lord, they belong to God. And so he said, at the moment that you were justified, at the moment you came to faith in Christ, you became gods. You were sanctified by the spirit. Now, others would say, well, no, I think that, that really they stopped doing these actual behavior patterns, and I won't contest it. But I, I think it's interesting that sanctified comes before the word justified here. I think they, they just are happening simultaneously. At the moment that they are justified and, and the righteousness of Christ is imparted to them, they are at that same moment set apart unto God as his own possession. You were sanctified. Isn't that beautiful? You're already sanctified in Christ. Doesn't it say in another place, I think, in 1 Corinthians? Yeah, it's not there. First uh, Corinthians chapter one that says Christ has become for us sanctification from God. Christ is our sanctification. I think that's true, isn't it, Tom? Thank you. See, when Tom says it, then I know it's true. All right. Um, it says here in 1 Corinthians 1:30, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness or sanctification and redemption. He is our holiness. He is our sanctification at the moment you trusted him. So I think that's what the spirit does. The moment that you are saved, so to speak, justified, the moment you trust in Christ by faith, the spirit enters into you and sets you apart unto God as his prized possession. Isn't that wonderful? What a beautiful thought that is. So the sanctifying work of the spirit right from the beginning. Turn the page, page two out of 13. We're doing great tonight, aren't we? That's all right. Titus three, uh, four through six. There it says, but when the kindness and love of God, our savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy spirit, whom he poured out on us genera- generously and through Jesus Christ, our savior, the washing of rebirth and renewal. That happens at the moment of justification, the moment you first trusted in Christ. You were washed and renewed by the Spirit, sanctified, set apart unto God as his prized possession. Um, And then Luke 3.16, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water, but uh, one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So I believe that the baptism of the Spirit happens at the moment of conversion. In this, I am disagreeing with, Martin Lloyd-Jones, which takes a great deal of courage to do. Um, but I just think Lloyd-Jones is wrong in saying that it's only a, a, an experience that the Spirit pours out, empowering the church for uh, evangelism. I think he definitely does that. But I think the baptism of the Spirit happens the moment that you are saved, the moment you are justified in Christ. So you're baptized by the, uh, by the Spirit. Now, how does the Spirit sanctify us after conversion? He works an ongoing sanctification work in us. Uh, for example, the fruit of the spirit, uh, Galatians 5, 16 through 23, some of the most Im- important verses there are in the everyday life of the Christian There's very, very important verses. Paul says, so I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh is one translation, sinful nature. What does that mean? Let me just stop and just get very applicational and practical for you. What does it mean to live by the spirit? Okay, attuned to God so there's a sense of an internal sense of the presence of God. Okay, more thoughts on this. What does it mean to live by the Spirit?
0: Anybody? It could be Rome, like, uh, Romans 5 says that, that He was delivered up and we were raised up and justified and uh, we live in a state of grace because He bore our transgressions. So if we live in a state of grace mm-hmm. Then uh, we benefit from what he's done, huh. and that be that. Uh, that state of grace is the spirit continually
1: working. So it's an ongoing sense of what Christ has done for us, and that we're in grace. That's beautiful. So a lively sense, a moment by moment sense that this, that Christ died for us. What else does it mean to live by the Spirit? Andy, yes, uh, I Andy. Think the First part of chapter
0: eight. <clears throat> for what the law was powerless to do with it, and speaking about the simple nature God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering and so he condemned sin in a simple manner in simple man, in order that the righteous requirements so of the law might be pulling that in us we do not live according to the simple nature but according to the
1: spirit live according to the spirit would you mind reading 8, 1, and 2 since you're right there Just they're very famous but they're just so beautiful
0: therefore there is now no condemnation
1: so there's the law of the spirit of life. You're set free from the law of sin and death. And then the spirit alive in you now brings you back to the moral law of God and says, this is the way walk in it. Just like it says in Psalm 119, I think it's uh, verse 32. Um, and there it says something like this. I run in the path of your commands for you have set my heart free. Isn't that beautiful? I was driving to church on Sunday and uh, Jenny, you remember this? Talking about Psalm 119 verse 32. They've been worried about Psalm 119 for a while. We read one Psalm every Sunday as we drive to church. They said, dad, here we are. It's here at last. Psalm 119. What are we going to do? You drive around the block until we finally read all 176 verses of it. So I said, tell you what, let's just break it into sections, reasonable sections. So we did 30 odd verse, 32 verse. That was the last verse. And so as we were driving, we were just talking about that. I run in the path of your commands. I was driving on Old Oxford Highway and I purposefully went off the road for a little bit. The looks on their faces. We're, you know, what are you doing? Jenny was the first to figure out what I was doing. I said, I'm just going where I want doing what I want. As a matter of fact, I'd like to drive through those woods. What do you say? No, no. I said, well, what what is that That black thing kind of going through the woods here with the white lines and the yellow in the middle? That's the road, Dad. Please stay on it. I said, that's the pattern here. The idea is that's where the freedom is. Sin tells you you can go anywhere you want. You can be four-wheelers. Hey, let's just four-wheel, all right? We can go anywhere. Do any, you know, It works until you hit the tree. And the tree isn't moving. And sooner or later, when you're four-wheeling through life, you're going to hit something that isn't going to move probably another four wheeler who's coming at you. All right. And the world is full of lawless people who think they can be happy running wherever they want. What happens is when you get converted, you say, I've, I've come to realize happiness is found in living the life. God wants me to live. And so I find joy in running in the paths of his commands. He set my heart free from four wheeling from figuring out I can go anywhere I want. I don't have to color between the lines. No, you do actually. And and if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbors yourself, if you follow the commands of God, you will be joyful. The Spirit tells you that. And I think live by the Spirit means basically we're keeping in step moment by moment with the Spirit as he leads us along the path of God's commands. Psalm 119, verse 32. Let's keep reading Galatians 5. So I say live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Again, look at that verse. It's amazing. Uh, Is that a command? Is that a command? Live by the Spirit and you will not, etc. One could say it's a command. It may be just an indicative statement. He's just stating a truth. If you live by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's a matter of fact, absolutely impossible for you to gratify the desires of the flesh if you're living by the Spirit. He goes on from there for the flesh, the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit, what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. A profound statement. We are half hearted creatures and we will be till the day we die. What that means is you will never be perfectly happy doing anything in this world. Isn't that, isn't that amazing because you are both flesh and indwelling spirit at the same time. Now, someday Someday in the future, praise God, you will lose the flesh forever. Isn't that marvelous? But in the meantime, you do not do what you want. Either way, whether you sin or do not sin, you will not be wholehearted in either decision. There will always be part of you regretting what you're doing. Isn't that something? The flesh will regret the lack of the gratification of its drives. And it'll tell you so. And it'll complain and moan and groan over the things that it's demanding from you. Conversely, the spirit will be grieved if you give in to the desires of the flesh. And he will communicate that grief to you by conviction of sin. And so there you are. There's a battle. Verse 17 says there's going to be a battle inside you. They're in conflict with each other. Verse 18. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Led by the spirit in Romans 8 means led by the spirit into battle. If you are a child of God, you are led by the spirit to put sin to death. He leads you by the hand into battle. And if you say, why would he do that? Well, it's the very thing he did to Jesus. Don't you remember he impelled Jesus out into the desert to be tempted by the devil? He does that same thing with us. He says, now let's go to battle. And he wants you to, to war, to put on your, your spiritual armor and to fight. He, that's what he wants from you. So he leads you by the spirit. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under law. Those that are led by the spirit don't need the law. We're above the law. Now, what do you mean by above the law so that we don't have, No, We're saying the law is for transgressors. It's to hold sin down we're, we're operating at a higher level. We don't need it because we're operating a higher level. We fulfill the law's righteous requirements just by following the spirit. We don't need to be commanded to do these certain things. It's just what the spirit works in us. That's what I think it means that we're not under the law. Okay, and, and then it says the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. By the way, I went through that list one time and I was amazed by how many relational words there were. Factions, envy, discord, strife, hatred, that kind of thing. Those are relationship things. You know, we tend to think right away that flesh equals sexual things. And, and it does. That's in the list too. But I'm, I'm amazed there are actually more that are relational bickerings and divisions and dissensions and problems. Those are elements of the flesh. Um, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the truth. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So that's the work of the Spirit. That's what He works in us. Later in that same chapter, He says, so I say, He says, keep in step with the Spirit. That's what He tells us to do. Keep in step with the Spirit. The Spirit basically has a drumbeat inside your heart. Let's keep in step with Him. That's the ministry of the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Uh, Romans 8. Yeah, Any. Oh, I'm sorry. It was Hudson. How are you? (laughs) Anytime you want to stop me, that's fine. Okay, Romans chapter 8, the ongoing work of the Spirit. You, however, controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. Look at that verse. What does that tell you? If the Spirit lives in you, just look at that one verse. If the Spirit lives in you, what is true? Does he say you should not be under the control of the sinful nature? What does he say? You are not. What does that mean? It means that the spirit is not a loser. <laughs> he doesn't come in to take second place. If he comes in, he comes in to dominate. He comes in to control, to rule because he's God. And so he's not going to lose to the flesh you say, well, how can that be? I sin a lot. I'm just saying, look what the spirit has been given to do. Will he finish that work in you? I tell you, he will. He is going to finish that work in you. And so the spirit is controlling. Um, you're under the control of the spirit. If the spirit of God lives in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness very important statement and if the spirit of him who raised jesus from the dead is living in you he who raised christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you therefore brothers we have an obligation but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it for if you live according to the sinful nature you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body you will live because those who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god do you see the connection between verse 13 and 14 being led by the spirit equals putting sin to death by the spirit that's what it is he leads you into battle if there's no battle you are not a Christian it's that simple it means you're a slave to sin dead in transgressions and sins but if there's a battle then you can be sure the spirit has led you into it and he will fight And you say ah to be free from the battle do you ever wish Do you ever yearn to be free from this battle I think you ought to that's a hope in that hope we were saved we're looking forward to the day that we will be free no more pain No more pain, isn't that wonderful? And I take that comprehensively. There's more pain than just physical pain, isn't there? Is there not psychological pain, emotional pain? Sometimes those are the most poignant. And my statement to you is: there will come a day that you will feel no pain, even emotionally or psychologically, be free from the struggle. Oh, how beautiful that will be! This is the ongoing work, the sanctifying work of the Spirit. This is what He's doing in you, brothers and sisters. It's going on right now. Isn't that wonderful? we are being sanctified together right now. The spirit is working in us and he's doing it interestingly by teaching us about himself. He wants us to know what he's doing. So again, he's not shy and retiring and doesn't want anyone to look at him. That's not it at all. He is, he is God and he wants us to know the work he's doing in us. Slaying of the spirit, I don't want to talk about it at all. So just read what I've got there from a website and let's just move on. It's not going to happen here tonight anyway. So let's just move on. Okay. If you have any compelling questions about what it is or if it's ever happened to you, come and talk to me. Um, but, uh, at any rate, let's talk next about the ministry of the spirit. The spirit reveals the spirit reveals. And by this, we mean, he reveals truth. Revelation is given to the prophets and the apostles. We have already seen that the Lord, I'm on the bottom of page three, that the Lord revealed his words to the prophets sometimes so directly that these words could be put into scripture. For example, Numbers 24, when Balaam looked out and saw Israel encamped tribe by tribe, the spirit of God came upon him and he uttered his oracle. The oracle of Balaam, son of Beor, the oracle of one whose, whose eye sees clearly, the oracle of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate and whose eyes are opened. And then he speaks. What's he saying there? The spirit told me to say these things and then he just speaks them. Zechariah 7.12, they made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law, the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. That verse teaches, Zechariah 7.12 teaches that the spirit spoke to the people through the prophets. It was the spirit speaking. Peter tells us that directly in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the origin, origination of prophecy is not with man. God wanted to speak to the human race. And by the way, that's such an important uh, important concept. Uh, And I, I think it covers so many problems. People talk to talk to me about, you know, they start to study about uh, church history and they talk about the formation of the canon. Where do we get the Bible? Uh, they talk about smoke filled rooms and votes. Fifty one percent voted book of Jude in and they're troubled by it. I said, well, it got in, didn't it? I mean, he doesn't need 80, 90 percent. I was troubling. I mean, it could have gone either way. I said, really? Could it have gone either way? Let's let's back up and say, what is God trying to do with the Bible? What is his? intention in giving us the Bible. What is his purpose? He wants to reveal himself. He wants to speak to us. Is he able to pull it off? Is he able to get us a book that we know is the word of God? He's able to do it. Whether by 51% or 100%, he's able to do that. Another scripture, Second Timothy says, the Lord knows those who are his. He's talking about children there, children of God. I think he also could, you could say he's talking about books. Does, not, does he not know which books he inspired? And is he not able to gather them together in a canon and get it done? So the Lord intended to speak to us and it originated from God. New Testament apostles and prophets were guided into all truth by the spirit. The spirit came to the apostles. Let's remember that the apostles were unique, special people. I think too often we, we make the jump. That when Jesus says you or whatever, sometimes speaking to the apostles, that that's for everybody. In one sense it is, but in another sense they had a very unique role. What was the unique and special role of the apostles that we don't have? Okay, communication, direct from God. That's also a prophecy, right? Okay, but what else? They were eyewitnesses of Jesus's earthly life. I can give you a great example of this. Do you remember when the woman breaks open that expensive perfume and pours it on Jesus in Matthew 26 and everybody's upset? It was like a year's worth of of money for all the perfume. And they're all upset. And do you remember what Jesus said? (laughs) He said, this woman has, has done a beautiful thing. She's prepared me for burial. And then he said, I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, What she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, how did that come about? Why is it we're still talking about that woman and what she did to Jesus? The apostles saw it and they wrote it later. And so Jesus, knowing ahead of time that would happen, said, you guys are going to write about it and everybody's going to read about it. We'll still be talking about this lady 20 centuries later. How in the world did Jesus know that? Wherever this gospel is preached, throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. An amazing thing because they were there and they witnessed it. So the apostles were eyewitnesses. Now, did they remember everything that happened? Well, at that point, no. I think even during Jesus' earthly ministry, they did not remember things. But the Spirit came to call to mind things that had happened, right? And so Jesus said this would happen, John 14, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Do you see that? The reminding ministry of the spirit. Do you ever wonder? You say, boy, I, you know, I can't remember things that happened last week. I can't remember. You know, sometimes I'll come home and my wife will ask me, you know, well, who did you talk to at church? And I'll say, huh. and then I'll, I'll remember. And she said, well, what did you talk about? And I, I'm amazed by how much has gone so quickly. You know, it's incredible. And does that ever happen to you? It does. I mean, all the time. Okay. Yeah. And I can't remember details. Then you say, well, then how can we have verbal inerrancy? How can, how can we have an actual literal account of this long high priestly prayer of Jesus or these, the sermon on the mound or whatever? How do we have that? This verse explains it. The Holy Spirit called to their mind, the things they had heard. And so they perfectly remembered the teachings of Jesus. All right. By the way, I know that this is a good example of why we got to be careful to not quickly or or immediately uh, take something that was spoken to the apostles and apply it to ourselves. But I think there is still a principle here. Does not the counselor call to mind things you've learned in Christ? Isn't it the spirit that gives you verses when you're trying to witness to somebody? He calls to mind things that you have learned. He reminds you of things. Also, the teaching ministry, he will teach you all things. I like a a good example of this is in John 2, 18 through 22. Then the Jews demanded of him, of Christ, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now look at verse 22. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled, what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Do you see that? That's a prime example of what Jesus said that the spirit was there to do. They remembered and said, oh, now I see destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it up. All of a sudden they understood what he meant by the words, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. Did they understand it at the time? Did they need to? No. No. They're just there, huh? I mean, over and over. I mean, the apostles, they didn't get it. They didn't understand. How many times did Jesus tell them he was going to die and they still didn't get it? Do you ever wonder about that? <laughs> I, I do. It's like, man, these guys are, well, whatever. I mean, and we want to hold them in high honor, but you think to yourself, isn't it clear what he means when he says, then Jesus took them aside and told them plainly, the son of man is going to be betrayed in the hands of men. They will beat him. they will They'll kill him. And on the third day, will he be raised to life? And it said, but they did not understand what he was saying. It was hidden from them. It's an amazing thing. But afterwards, they remembered. All right, so the Spirit reminded them of things Jesus said and did. And he also revealed new things that hadn't been taught yet. He would teach them new things that were yet to come in the future. Who would do that? The Holy Spirit would. John 16, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you, listen, what is yet to come. Do you see that? He's going to tell future things. Can you think of a good example of that? Oh, come on. When you think of future things, what do you think of? Rapture. Rapture. Okay. The Revelation. The book of Revelation. Doesn't John say at the beginning, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. He says that I was in the spirit and it was by the spirit of God that we have this book of revelation. It's an amazing thing. So he's going to tell what is yet to come. So the counselor, the Holy Spirit came on the apostles, reminded them of the things Jesus taught, taught them the truths and the significance. So they understood them and yet revealed future things. The Spirit did all that in the apostles, okay? From time to time, we see the direct ministry of the Spirit like this in the New Testament. Um, The Spirit comes on Elizabeth. He comes on Zechariah and Simeon. They're moved at the time of the birth of Christ to say certain things. Remember how Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Spirit, said, blessed are you among women, etc." That's how I was able on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday to say that we believe in the personhood of the preborn because Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit when she made her statement. Do you see that? Other than that, it's just a statement made by somebody in the Bible. But, but the Lord, specifically the Holy Spirit, wanted us to know that this was a perfect statement by Elizabeth. She was acting like a prophetess at this moment. And she spoke with the authority of God when she said, as soon as your greeting reached my ear, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Now, the, the, the words for joy, why are they important? Why are the words for joy important? meaning that John, not yet born, felt joy. He is a person. person. And the phrase then Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit said gives us the stamp of perfection on that word. It gives us a sense of certainty that we need for this battle. Do you understand what I'm saying? That the preborn is truly a person. All right. But again, that's the spirit moving. Again and again, we see this. Uh, The spirit also gives evidence of God's presence. Now, by the way, before I move on from this topic, okay, Um, The Spirit constantly reveals truth to us as well. How does the Spirit reveal truth to you now? Speaking very practically, how does the Spirit reveal truth to you? Through Through the Word of God. How does that happen, Tom? When you sit down and read the Bible, how is the Spirit teaching you? To
0: hear, That's right. That the bears witness
1: what he wrote the yeah, you want to see a prime example of this? I've talked about this before, but look at Hebrews chapter three. Hebrews three is a very good example of this. Um, and and I want to speak very practically to you um, concerning your daily quiet times. This was just a very strong insight that came to me, and this has become one of the most important verses in my daily Christian life. Um, Hebrews 3 7 and 8. Can somebody read that for me? Be willing to do that.
0: So, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden.
1: Why I was angry with
0: them, with, excuse me, was angry with that generation, and I said, "Their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known My ways." So I declare, "On open My anger, they shall never enter My
1: rest." Yeah, look at um, right at the beginning of what Jim just read. Thank you for reading. Um, look what it says. Um, so, as the Holy Spirit says, see that. And what follows after that? What follows after that? Well, look at the very next thing after. The, let's, look, let's, get, let's get really mechanical and kind of precise here. After the word says, you get a colon probably. And then after that comes a quotation mark. What is the quotation mark? Quoting scripture. What scripture is it quoting? Just look at the footnote in your Bible. Usually it'll tell you the Old Testament reference. What is it? Psalm 95. Do you see that at the bottom? Just look down at the bottom. It's right down there. Psalm 95, verse 7 through 11. As a matter of fact, if you go back in the Psalms and read it, there it'll be. Psalm 95, verse 7 through 11. When was Psalm 95 uh, written? Well, it was written by David. King David wrote it. When did he live? About a thousand years before Christ. A thousand years before Christ. What was David writing about? He was writing about the time earlier than that when his Jewish ancestors had refused to believe the promise of God and hardened their hearts and would not enter the promised land. And so God declared they will never enter my rest. David, writing about 500 years later, said, let's not be like that. That's an example of unbelief. Let's go on and follow God. David wrote Psalm 95 in about the year 1000 B.C. When did the author to Hebrews write what he wrote? 60, 65 A.D., a thousand years later. And he's quoting Psalm 95, the author of Hebrews is. How does he introduce his quote of Psalm 95? Holy so as the Holy Spirit, what? What's the next word? Say. Says. What does that mean? Says. Come on, let's do a little grammar work here. He is speaking it when? Right now. And what is he saying? Today. He's talking about today. If you what? If you hear his voice, can you hear his voice today? Well, accordingly, according to this, you can by reading Psalm 95, for example. If you read Psalm 95, you will hear him speak to you. And what's he going to say? Don't harden your heart. If you hear him speak, do not harden. But he's getting it just by reading a piece of scripture. Does the spirit speak scripture to us? Yes, he does. If you come at it as a believer, you say, speak to me, teach me, speak to me. Now, Psalm 119 verse 18, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. So you come to it. It's your quiet time. You say, this isn't just there's reading. And then there's you got to use tone of voice. I guess there's reading and then there's reading. And we need to do the reading and not just the reading, you know, the kind of sipping at the scripture. You just say, I I can't do that. I've got to hear from God today. I've got to hear from God. Speak to me and just store it up and and just say, Lord, I'm going to need some things today. Just store up in me the scripture. And it's amazing how he does that, how he gives you the food you need for that day's struggles and troubles. It's just incredible. So as the Holy Spirit says, present tense, quote, today, if you hear me speaking to you, don't harden your heart. And he's getting that right out of Psalm 95, a dusty piece of Jewish prophecy of Psalm written a thousand years before. That's not dusty at all. It's alive. The word of God is what? What is the author about to tell us about the word of God? Chapter four and verse 12. It is living and active. How is it living? Because the spirit is wielding. it. It's the sword of the what? Spirit, the word of God. The spirit takes the scripture and brings it home. Okay, how does this get practical? For how How would that knowledge affect your quiet time? tomorrow morning which you will have one I'm sure all of you every last one of you get up nice and early and read the Bible tomorrow morning how will Hebrews 3 7 and 8 affect your reading of scripture tomorrow okay he's going to speak to you what else when you hear him speak what you, listen to his voice. you should listen to his voice and don't what what Harden your heart. How do you harden your heart against the voice of the Spirit? Not in. Don't put it into practice. That's right. The Spirit wants you to obey what he has told you to do. So what I would do is very practically get up early, turn your alarm off, shower, put some water on your face, whatever you need to do, wake up, uh, get yourself going, all right? And then sit down, open up the Bible. George Mueller recommended you begin with Scripture and not with prayer. Pray a quick prayer, but don't have your prayer time first. And I think that's so true. You know why? you got to hear first. Let him speak to you first. Let him get you going. And then you can speak back to him what you're saying. I think it's just good advice. Mueller said, for the longest time, I began with prayer and then read scripture. He said, I, 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 at some point, I reversed it. And then I let God speak to me first. So I would pray a quick prayer. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes and I might see wonderful things in your law. Speak to me now according to Hebrews 3, 7 and 8. Talk to me. Speak to me now. I want to hear you. And then you just read. And you read carefully. You read with thoughts, etc. And you look to apply what you're reading. Any other thoughts on hearing the Spirit speak to you by the Scripture? Okay. Yes, Tom. Uh, I read
0: something one time the difference between God saying something in His Word and you have an impression. And I saw a quote Billy Graham's wife, Ruth. She said it. I believe every impression was the voice of God. She said, I've
1: married the wrong man seven times. <laughs> <laughs> that's incredible. She, uh, probably a very desirable woman then. <laughs> a lot of, <laughs> lot of suitors coming her way. Well, that's very, very true. Uh, I'll take one more subsection. We'll be done. Another thing the Spirit does, He illumines or reveals truth, but He also gives evidence of God's presence. Have you ever been in a place and you just felt the presence of God? Isn't it incredible a feeling or a sense of the very presence of God? I I had a a sense like that, one of the most incredible times I've ever had in my life. Um, I was single. I was renting a room from uh, a family, and uh, I was involved in a Bible study ministry at my work. I was an engineer, graduated from MIT. I was out in my life, and um, I just wanted to have a ministry. And there was a guy uh, in our uh, engineering department who had been diagnosed with a very serious form of cancer. And I, at that time, was reading certain books and thinking about ministry, and I, and I started wondering if the Lord uh, wanted me to uh, kind of heal this guy in front of the whole department, you know, if I should pray for him to be healed. And as soon as I began thinking about that, I started getting scared. I thought, I'm going to get fired tomorrow. All right, and uh it was a scary thought well, at that time, I was reading the Book of Judges, and I think it was talking about uh, I think it was samson's parents, and the Angel of the Lord came down to tell samson 's parents that uh, Samson was going to be born, and they wanted to give him some food and so he uh he said, you know he could make they could make it, and they brought this food as an offering to the angel of the Lord and you remember he goes up with the offering up back to heaven, you remember that, and they were just terrified, and they felt that they were in the very presence of God and it was a terrifying thing so I thought well maybe I'll kind of make an offering to God or something like that and maybe the Lord will hear my prayer and give me wisdom to know whether I should do this I was willing to do it I just didn't know if it was God's will for me to do it so all I had was peanut butter and jelly that's all I had to offer this is not meant to be a joke I'm just telling you what happened alright so I went and made a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and I remember feeling like I should put extra jelly on it. I don't know why I just did <laughs> I'll never forget that. It was an odd thing. I cut the sandwich, um, and I was really kind of scared. I was like my hands were shaking a little bit, and the lady, was, I was uh, renting this room from a married couple, and the lady came in, and I kind of jumped when she came in. I was just startling. I went into my room and closed the door. It was winter, and I put the window up, and I put the thing on the on the windowsill, and I was just praying. And then all of a sudden, I had a sense of the fear of the Lord that came over me, it was unbelievable. One of the scariest things I ever felt. It was an o- overwhelming feeling to get away from the window. I just felt that, and I moved back, and it was it was terrifying. And at that moment, I was not afraid anymore at all about praying for that guy the next day. I was more afraid that the Lord would actually take the sandwich and come into the presence of the, and that I was going to see the Lord and that He was holy and I wasn't. It was the fear of the Lord, but it was a delightful feeling all at once. Isn't that amazing? How you can be terrified and yet it's delightful interesting he says in Isaiah 11 he will speak of Christ delight in the fear of the Lord what an odd thing but there it was but it was one of the most pervasive senses of the presence of God I've ever had in my life an incredible thing I did pray for that man not in the way I imagined but I went to him privately and asked if I could pray for him and he was healed about a year and a half later Um, It didn't happen right away. I imagine some big spectacular thing. And uh, either one way or the other, he gets healed or I get fired. Either way, it's going to be a fireworks day. I remember that. God had something a little quieter in mind, and he did answer the, the prayer and all that. But I've never forgotten the sense of the presence of God and how terrifying it was. And you know what? I think what will it be like then for the unsaved to stand before God on judgment day without the advocate, without any shed blood of Christ, just in their sins facing the holiness of God? What a terrifying thing. I believe it's the spirit that ministers the sense of the presence of God. You might, you might feel it in corporate worship. You might feel it in a quiet time. You might feel it while you're trying to witness to somebody. You might feel it when some unbelievable or amazing thing happens to you, but it's the spirit that ministers the presence of God and makes that, that presence seem very real. I think you ought to ask him for it. You ought to ask that the spirit would minister the presence of God to you in your prayer life or in your home, your family, something like that. You should pray that he'll do that in our corporate worship time. Wouldn't that be awesome? If you all prayed that, that the spirit would be poured out on Sunday, we're having the Lord's Supper. Let's ask that the Lord would pour out his grace on the observance of the Lord's Supper. We Protestants underestimate that ordinance. The Lord didn't underestimate it. A number of the Corinthians fell asleep because they weren't dealing, they died because they weren't dealing with it properly. We could pray and ask that the Spirit of God would be moving in a mighty way in our observance of the Lord's Supper. Anyway, it's the Spirit that ministers to us. What a gift the Holy Spirit is. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus says it is to your advantage that I go away. And why? Because he'll send the Spirit. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time to study tonight. It's been a rich time, a wonderful time. In your word, thank you for the brothers and sisters. Thank you for their presence here. God, I pray in a very practical way that you would help them tomorrow uh, in their quiet times to just sense the presence of God. I pray that they, having heard from God, would not harden their hearts, but instead that they would obey and do what he says. Lord, I pray that you would move in such a powerful way on Sunday that we will feel the presence of God as we observe the Lord's Supper that we would remember and think about the body and the blood of Christ and that there would be a sense of the presence of God by the Spirit in all of us as we take and eat and drink and remember what was done for us at the cross. And, Lord, I pray that it would be a joyful sense of the presence of God. Please move in a mighty way. And, Lord, I extend it to the entire worship service, to the singing, the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and the hearing of the word preached. God, I pray that you'd be there and that we would experience it, Lord. I pray we'd look forward to it and that you'd get us ready for it. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at TwoJourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the Two Journeys of the Christian life